0: I wanted to start uh, this morning's service with that video for a couple reasons. One, to kind of prepare you all for next Sunday, I think it was mentioned at the beginning of the service, very beginning, Uh, we will be celebrating baptism, Andrea's and others. So uh, it's a very, very important moment in the life of our church when we do this and in the lives of those who will be baptized. I want to prepare you for that. If you're interested in being baptized, you can still uh, take advantage of that, but you need to let us know. You can go straight to our website, right on the opening of the website it'll say events. You hit that click of the events button. It'll take you straight to a baptism link and you can sign up or you can even let someone know here in the in the connections area in the in the Blanc Center this morning. But it's a very exciting time on next Sunday. But also I wanted to use that video because Andrea's final words in some ways sum up um, my final message in this Series, this uncomfortable series, which is this. The the secret, if I can use that word, of the Christian life, that is to say the promised joy that uh, the Bible speaks about, a sense of peace that the Bible speaks about, the sense of purpose that the Bible speaks about is found for Christian people uh, in making God your first priority, right? That's really what it's about. Now baptism is just a time where people mark it publicly, right? But really, it's about something you and I are called to do every single day is to make God your first priority, to make God my first priority. The heart of discipleship really is is making this decision. Not once, uh, but every single day of our lives. And it requires us regularly uh, to do things that are uncomfortable, to get uncomfortable, because God is always challenging us to trust him at deeper levels in our lives. That's what we're talking about and have been talking about. So this morning, we're going to close this series with a message as we prepare to take this table called Uncomfortable Cross. The passage we'll look at is from Mark chapter 8. You have a copy of the Bible Open up to Mark chapter 8, verses 27 uh, through chapter 9, verse 1. Mark chapter 8, verse 27 through chapter 9, verse 1. Uncomfortable cross. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, to the 12 disciples, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. And he said to them, truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is a, a turning point uh, in the life of the disciples and it 's a turning point, I think for all of us as we think about being disciples of Jesus today this passage, this moment it 's found right in the middle of the book of mark, but it 's really it 's a really a, a come to Jesus moment, I suppose where we get that term it's it 's a moment of truth right and that 's why Jesus asks them, yes, he talks about what it means to follow them, but this passage starts with a question right. All right, what does everybody have to say about me, but what do you say, right? What do you say? Because the answer to that question uh, has everything to do with whether or not you and I really have what it takes to be a follower of Jesus. So what Jesus says to Peter here, he's going to say to all of us in this passage, In the first thing is this, your life is not your own, right? I think that's what's going on here. Your life is not your own. Oh no, for some of it takes a long time, Christian or non-Christian, to dawn on the fact that you do not possess your own love. You really don't have, control is an illusion uh, in life, right? Your life is not your own. But I want you to even think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, even in this passage. And you, and, and you have to ask yourself, as you should, what provoked such a strong reaction from Peter, right? I mean, can you imagine having the the, um, the wherewithal the the, the courage the the, the the instinct to pull Jesus Christ aside as if he 's going to you know let me let me set you straight, Jesus, and rebuke Jesus in this moment that 's what Peter does, but remember, Jesus turns and looks at all the disciples. this is just for Peter. Peter's a stand-in for them, and he's a stand-in for you and me. But think about this for a minute. Your life is not your own. Uh, From the time that Peter was a kid, okay, and this is true of all the disciples, he often they had this sense of um this is the whole old testament right they they had a sense of expectation i don't know if you know that we have that kind of thing except we should when we think about as christians the return of jesus but in the context of the old testament they had this expectation the entire old testament really is a is a is a is a story that talks about the coming of the promised messiah from the writings of moses through the psalms through the prophets it's all all about the coming messiah and the coming messiah if you read the old testament carefully is going to do a couple things he's going to you know defeat um, the evil in the world. He's going to, you know, confront a darkness. He's going to confront the establishment. And by the time Jesus comes into the world, of course, the Jewish people, and it's not a new phenomenon, they've been under the occupation of other people. They're paying high taxes. They're second-class citizens. They're no longer free to be worship in the way that they once did. They're under someone else's rule, and there's this sense of expectation. That the Messiah is going to come and he's going to defeat all of this injustice, and there are royal expectations, right? David, a, the son of David, which means he's going to have a, he's going to be a monarch. The word Messiah, Jesus says, Who am I? Peter says, You're the Messiah. The word Messiah, same word, same underlying word we get the word Christ, means anointed one. And anybody that knew the Old Testament knew you're talking about a royal figure. You're talking about a king. You're talking about somebody like David, but greater than David, greater than Solomon, that wouldn't just rule over a patch of property in the Middle East, but he would be king of the world, right? That's what they were waiting for. And so Peter, like the other disciples, they expected that there was going to be a a reckoning, and they believed that Jesus was this person. All the things that are wrong in the world, right, were going to be righted. For three years, think about it. By this time. They had watched Jesus heal sickness. This is the kingdom of God. That's how this passage ends. The kingdom of God is coming. And Jesus was giving commercials of the kingdom of God as he healed sickness, as he exercised demons. They had seen this as he confronted the establishment. You know those famous words? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Finish it for me. Okay, the disciples got this sense. And I'm sure Peter was like, you know, with Jesus, saying, listen, what great social evil can we tackle next? What is it? Sex trafficking? Let's get it. You know, bad water? Let's get it. New roads? Let's get it. Taxation? Let's solve those problems. That's what they were looking forward to, right? But then Jesus has to ruin everything, right? In verse 31, right? You're the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. Our whole nation has been waiting for. Then he began to say to them, right? Uh, The son of man. He doesn't say the son of man is going to die. The son of man is going to suffer. Like, guys, I want you to know I have some insight and trouble is coming and I, I, I know it's coming. He doesn't say that. He says the son of man, speaking of himself, a term used to use for himself, must circle that suffer, must be killed. Now think about it. You and I don't, we, you know, we look at everything 2,000 years in retrospect and we know the cross and what it means and all this, but these guys had no appreciation for that all at all. This is the first time in the Bible, in this moment, where the idea of the promised king, the, the the Messiah, the Christ, was associated not with royalty, not with a monarchy, not with setting the world to rights, that he was associated with suffering, right? I mean, it made absolutely no sense. I don't even know if we have an equivalent, but it's almost like you see these, um, you know, these a lot of these, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, terrorist acts and all these these crazy things that happen, you know, unfortunately all the time, right? Or somebody goes into a church or somebody goes into a high school or something, and then they go to the neighbors, you know? And they go, gee, what did you think about this guy? And they go, he was the nicest guy, you know? We never saw it coming in many of these cases. We just didn't see it. I'm, I'm blown away that this happened, right? This is Peter's having one of these moments, except a lot bigger. He says, what are you talking about? suffering. There was no expectation at all, right, by the Jewish community that the royal figure, the Messiah, was going to suffer. Now, there are prophecies, some of you are saying, in the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, where it says there is a suffering servant, right? And we make sense of them in retrospect, but the Jewish people never made those connections to the suffering servant, okay? They, all, they, all, they understood the Messiah was somebody who was going to uh, deal with the world's problems, right? And Jesus ruined it all. It's the first time that you ever see the association with suffering and the Messiah is right here, and it's a game changer, which is why Jesus opens this passage and says, listen, do you know who I am? Who, who do people say that I am? See, some of us, even Christians... I've been a Christian 30 years, but some of us more or less, you know, we have the right answers. We might know, you know, what is Jesus' last name? You know, it's Christ. Right, we know who he is, but do you really know him? Do you really know what it means to follow him? Because what this passage essentially says is, listen, he must suffer, he must die. Because listen, there's no point in solving the social ills of our world, whether that's you know, poverty or you know, uh, abuse of any different, we, if we, there's no point in solving the social ills if we don't solve the underlying problem, which is the human heart. And even Peter's heart was sick, and my heart is sick and your heart is sick. This is why Jesus needed to die, right? This is why uh, uh, Peter needed to have his, his his thinking changed like Peter. here's the point. your life is not your own. We tend think about your yourself to create a Jesus. this is what's, this is why it's a turning point that suits our own priorities, back to what Henry has said, right? Our own politics, our own prejudices, our own ideas. listen, our own agenda, right. Whether that agenda is, even if that agenda is is an altruistic agenda, right? I want to solve some social problem. I want to raise my kids right. That's a good agenda. But what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, not because you want to line your pockets with the offerings. No, that's not what he says. Because you have in mind merely human concerns, even good things, but not the concerns of God. The truth is this. This is the sobering truth. We all need to face it. Not just today, really every day. Baptism is a way to mark it as a point in time. We are not in charge of his life, right? Jesus, you got the wrong ideas. He is in charge of our life, right? We don't set his path. He sets our path. You will never experience the promises of God. I mean, the ones that you really, I'm not talking about things. I'm talking about the peace that we long for. I'm talking about the joy that is promised. I'm talking about purpose in life. You will never experience those things. I will never experience those things unless we come to terms. I I mean, really down in the core of who you are that your life is not your own, right? Your life is not your own. You are not a good manager of your life. I am not a good manager of my life, right? Jesus needs to be the manager of your life. I was baptized almost 30 years ago, but let me say this. I have to affirm my baptism every single day. I'm not being hyper, I'm not, being, I'm not exaggerating. I mean, every single day I have to come to terms whether it's issues of money, issues of the, the, the ideas and imaginations of my heart, the way that I deal. I mean, every single day I have to, in my own way, have to say, God, His, he, he is the leader in my life. He is in charge of my life. I have to wake up in a manner of speaking and say, God, what do you say about me, right? How do you, what is your word about me? I'm not going to tell, I'm not, I don't want to go to my own mind to answer, you know, who am I? That's not a good place to go. What do you have to say about me? And what's important for me to do today? Your life is not your own. Second point, the way to self-fulfillment, okay, is self-denial. Now, this is the, This is what the passage says, and stay with me for a minute. This is one of the most important truths in all of the Bible, okay? It's mentioned in all the Gospels. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their... It's one of the most important truths, but it is one of the most misunderstood truths, okay, in all of the Bible. What does it mean? It's not about wanting less in your life, right? Some of us look at this and it's like, it's uh, you know, to, 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 uh, to deny yourself means to want, it means to go on some kind of a diet, you know, right? I'm not gonna buy that second car or I'm not gonna get that, this, or that. It's not what it's talking about at about it all. It's not about wanting less for your life. In fact, it's ironically the opposite, right? It's not about wanting less. It's about embracing a whole different kind of life. Completely different. It's not a matter of degrees. It's a completely different, this is, I, this is from some writer, but he said it so well. It's the denial of the grasping self to liberate a greater self. That's really what he's talking about, right? He doesn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple must, you know, just, just you know, become a, 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 you know, live in a shack and, and give away all your stuff, and, and, may, and the harder life is, the more you're going to have rewards in heaven. That's not what he says. Verse 35, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. What he means is whoever wants to make their own security, their own comfort, the the person who thinks they're going to be able to, you know, just kind of circumscribe their life, plan it all out, whoever wants to do that, you're going to lose it because you're not a good manager of your own life, right? It helps like a good parent. Saying whoever wants to do that... It, the, it's the denial of the grasping self is what he's really saying to liberate a greater self. But whoever loses their life—it's not talking about jumping off a bridge, right? In fact, in Mark and Luke's verse, it says you need to die daily. This is a metaphor. It's a spiritual teaching. But whoever loses their life, whoever decides, listen, get real. I'm not capable of leading my life. I'm not capable of organizing my life. I don't know who God has made me to fully be. I'm going to trust him. He who loses his own small ambitions will be liberated from much greater ambitions, right? That's what he's saying. That's really what he's saying. It's a denial of the grasping self to liberate a greater self, one that is not measured a life in material possessions or personal achievement, but in wholehearted service to God. Really becoming who it is that God wants you to become, wants me to become. I read this week, Wednesday I think it was, with many of you, if you're reading our 365, um, on Wednesday, that the, the, Jacob's wrestling with the, with the strange man, you know, with God. I mean, the wrestling match. Some of you don't know the story, some of you do. It's an amazing story, though. And it's in the Bible, like all the stories in the Bible, to teach us something. And here Jacob, the great um, patriarch, one of the major players in the Old Testament, Jacob, Abraham's grandson, the father of the nation of Israel, the people of God. And Jacob had spent, uh, was, had spent 20 years of his life on the run, Right? Because he'd, in, 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 when he was in the promised land as a young man, he stole his brother's birthright. Some of you don't store, some of you don't. He stole his brother's blessing, right? In this culture, you received your father's wealth and your, um, through, a, through, a, through a blessing. And he went in there and dressed up like his brother and his father was blind and he, he went in there and stole it. And his name, Jacob, actually means deceiver, right? That's really what he was. But really who Jacob was, was he represented in sort of in an archetype, all people who are, it's the grasping self that says, listen, if anything's going to happen in my life, if I'm ever going to get this or get her or get him or solve this, I'm going to have to do it for myself, right? God helps them who helps themselves kind of a thing, right? That's who Jacob was. But after God sends him for 20 years, he has to leave the Promised Land because his brother wants to kill him. Because of his own behavior, and he goes with his best wits to uh, the place where he was, uh, his mother was from, and he meets his father-in-law, like named Laban, who was he was no match for Laban. And Laban represents, in some ways, the world that you and I live in. And Laban was a guy who Jacob said changed his wages ten times. He worked day and night. He was a task master. And all of Jacob's ingenuity, all of his great ideas, all of his scheming, all of his grasping came to nothing, just like it does in your life and just like it does in my life. And it took him 20 years to learn that. And in Genesis 32, Jacob is back on the verge of walking back into the promised land, and he has this beautiful prayer. And I want you to think about it. It's really what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, you know, go sell your stuff, go live like a, a pauper, you know, just go suffer for Jesus. He says, no, listen, your, your, your ambitions are too small. You need to let go of your own small ambitions. You need to get real and realize you cannot run your own life. You need to make me your priority, and then you'll find the true meaning of life. And Jacob says this. He's, he's having a mo- I would say it's his conversion, and he sits on his knees and he, he's, he has this moment on the edge of the promised land, which he'd been out of it for 20 years. Why do they call it the promised land? It's, not about, it's nothing special about the sand. It's making a point that life is not about what you achieve, what you grasp. It's about what you receive in, from God. That's what the whole point is. And he says, listen, he says, God he has this beautiful prayer. He says, you know, when I left here 20 years ago, this is, all, this is a, a virtual paraphrase, very close. He says, I had nothing but the clothes on my back, right? You ever have one of those moments where you just got to leave right away? He had to leave right away. He said, I had nothing but the clothes on my back. And he said, here I am today with this beautiful family, 11 sons and a daughter and, and hundreds of servants. And he had so much wealth. It was be- he, he, couldn't, he couldn't have spent all the money that he had. And he got on his knees and he said, I am so unworthy of your kindness. And then he wrestles with this um, man, which we believe was God himself, and he realizes this is God. He's He's having an actual wrestling match, and this is what he says. He doesn't say, give me this, give me that. He says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. And he realized in this moment the secret of life Right, is not the grasping, it's not go after it, it's not scheming, it's not trying to use your wits. You will fail, you will be disappointed, you will be destroyed just like he was. It's understanding that you cannot run your own life and that true self-fulfillment comes in self-denial, it's in making God the first priority in your life. He that loses his small, self-centered, security-seeking self and yields them to God. And for me and the gospel, you'll find the true meaning of life, right? And I just had this moment as I was reading it, and I thought about my own life, you know? uh, uh, I'm looking at Mike, Mike. I went to high school with him, so you can ask him later. You know, when I thought about my life, I graduated and became a Christian when I was in college, and man, I I was as far from God as you could get, in a way. And I can still remember, I felt called to go to seminary, and I got in my little junker Volkswagen rabbit, anybody remember those? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And I mean, I had a couple hundred dollars in my pocket, and that was it. And I'm driving, I mean, you talk about leaving the promised land. That was it. And, I, and, 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 and that was the beginning of a journey for me. But I just sat in my little living room this Wednesday and I thought, God, you have been so amazing to me. Look at what you have done with this man, right? This is what Jesus is talking about. But that will never happen to you. It will never happen. And it's not a one-time decision. is a great way to start. But the way of self of fulfillment is self-denial. Quote, you can throw this guy up, C.S. Lewis, the great C.S. Lewis. Listen to this quote. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. Now leave that up there. Let me read the rest of the quote to you. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely the meeting place for trains of events which I never started and I cannot stop, like the divorce of my parents, as an instance, speaking of Andrea's testimony. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. Your real self will not come out as long as you are looking for it, that's what Jesus is saying. It will only emerge when you're looking for him. We learn who we are by discovering who he is. That's what Jesus is saying. We learn who we are by discovering who he is. What about you? What about me? Andrea says, I'm making God my first priority. I want to live my life as a woman with God. That's my goal. What is your goal? Right? What are you living for? That's what this passage is. What am I living for? Last point in my application, as you think about this moment, even in the life of how can we become a church for people who are hungry for change? It's my whole point in this series, those of you who have been with us these now um, five weeks. How can we become a church for people who are hungry for change? Because my conviction, my belief, I think you would agree with me, I hope you would, that our community, I'm not talking about Timbuktu, that too, but Penfield, Pittsburgh, Fairport, Greece, I mean, our community is chock full of people, just like Andrea, young and old, black and white, male and female, people um, who don't know who they are, don't know that God loves them, and they're hungry for change, Right? How can we be a church for people who are hungry for change? Three quick things, just just, uh, things to think about before we take this table. Number one, we need to expect more from ourselves. Starts with us. That's what I've been talking about for this month, right? The church is not simply this gathering. It's you and me living out in the world, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We're going to celebrate that here. We ought to lay down our lives for one another. The church ought to be a place where people are laying down their lives. In other words, they're loving people in a way that people are not being loved in the world. That's what Andrea learned through her friend. We need to start expecting more from ourselves. Second thing, quickly. We need to expect more for others. I believe our community is full of people like Andrea, but they're not looking for a hip church. They're not looking for a help me find myself church, but they're looking for a help me find the person God has truly made me to be church, right? That's what they're looking for. And we need to be a place where we can invite people, right, into a community where things are really, people are changing. It needs to be clear in all of our environments that we want people to be into a relationship with Jesus where their life can change. God accepts you exactly as you are. I don't care what your background is. The church, like Ellis Island, bring your tired, hungry, you know, you know broken, sinful self. God says you have a place but I just want to keep you there. I just want to keep you there. People are hungry for change. We need to expect more from them. And lastly, we need to point people to Jesus, right? What I loved most about Andrea's story was the woman. She's probably not even a part of this church. Her second mother, who didn't, you know, point fingers at her, didn't necessarily throw scriptures at her, she said, who, who had a very positive spirit and looked me in the face and listened to me, and I wasn't interested in what said the Lord. She said, I just wanted to talk more about my problems, and she listened to me, and she said, I'm gonna pray for you, and she would share some of God's word with me, and that woman, right, God used her to help this woman find what she was really needed and really looking for, right? We need to be a community that points people to Jesus.